0: President Biden recently suffered a public speaker's nightmare. Addressing a conference combating hunger, he sought to publicly recognize one of the congresswomen that uh, was a co sponsor of the event. He said, Jackie, are you here? He's asking this from the podium as he scans the audience Where's Jackie? Congressman Jackie Walorski was not in attendance. She had died in a car accident several weeks earlier. Biden's spin doctors flew into action, and pundits on the right pounced on the opportunity to criticize. None of that really concerns us here. But the incident reminds us just how assuredly and how decisively the book will one day close on our earthly lives. One moment here, living, striving, then the story of who we were and all that we did ends. Book closed. Thereafter, our legacy remains in the hands of others and remains ultimately in the hands of God. Hebrews 9.27 says that we are appointed to die once, and after that, to stand before Christ as our final judge. There's a final, determining judgment before the Lord that we all face. Whether we feel it or not, it is what he has revealed. In our series on the life of the of the prophet Elijah, the primary actors of late have been King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. And today, we close the book on this notorious couple who lived at full-throttle rebellion against God. This is their earthly legacy. And we witness today their bitter end in divine judgment. As we close out the book on Ahab and Jezebel, let me warn you at the start here, there's a lot of moving pieces. We'll scan a lot of years, a lot of people. So hang with me here as we motor through pretty quickly But we must first summarize, as we come to this last concluding event, let's first summarize the prophecies concerning Ahab and Queen Jezebel that we have seen in the series thus far. First of all, Elijah's vision of God on Mount Sinai, or Horeb, in 1 Kings chapter 19. Following God's victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you remember uh, that, that scene, we read in chapter 19... In verse 1, that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And so Elijah flees in fear for his life. And he goes ultimately directed by God to Mount Sinai, or Horeb, verse 8. This is the very place where God revealed himself to Moses earlier as the nation covenanted with God there at Mount Sinai. And on this very mount, Elijah stands before the judge of all the universe, and he stands, you remember, as the prosecuting attorney that is prosecuting Israel for her infidelity to God. And after God proclaims the sufficiency of his word, remember that the the whispered voice of God is all that is needed. In the midst of the burning sacrifice that licks up the very ground on which it's offered, God points Elijah to his simple word. This is the sufficient power. And there on that mountain, God pronounces this judgment. He the judge Elijah, the prosecuting attorney against Israel. This is God's judgment. Remember it again in chapter 19, verse 15. 19.15 And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Now, focus there on Jehu. Jehu will be anointed king. Secondly, as we consider Elijah's prophecies, we have Ahab's botched victory over Syria that we noted in chapter 20. God directly intervened to hand Ahab two stunning battlefield victories. These victories over Syria were of God. They were not what Ahab deserved and not what anyone would anticipate at this point. But God purposed to destroy the godless king, Ben-Hadad, in the process of of these victories. And so he would end Syria's destructive attacks upon Israel. But Ahab took the victory as his personal achievement to be handled the way that he saw fit, to bring glory to his name. And so he welcomes Ben-Hadad. The prophet rebukes Ahab. I have here Elijah. This is actually a different prophet, but in the whole process of the ministry there. He rebukes Ahab for this breach of covenant with God. Notice chapter 20 and verse 42. 20 verse 42. And this prophet says to Ahab, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So the prophet rebukes Ahab for this breach of covenant with God. Ahab does not repent of his sin against God. How does he respond? He simply pouts. He mopes about the palace. He will not respond to God's rebuke. These two prophecies against Ahab have now stand fixed. Then we come to chapter 21. So you notice here it's 19, 20, 21. Three times here. Now we come to chapter 21, and we have Ahab's murder of Naboth and theft of Naboth's vineyard. In chapter 21, Naboth refused to violate God's covenant by giving his ancestral inheritance over to Ahab upon demand. And where do we find Ahab? Verse 4, once again pouting. At the end of the verse, he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. But Queen Jezebel sets a plan in motion that leads to Naboth's murder and Ahab dutifully at her command and delightfully journeys then northward from Samaria to Jezreel where his summer palace is and where this vineyard is that he so wants. It's here that Elijah is sent to confront the king yet again. We come to chapter 21 and verse 20 chapter 21 and verse 20 and ahab said to elijah have you found me O my enemy there's a repentant heart for you huh you again you that always brings the word of god that's so discouraging to me you found me again what do you have to say he answered yes i found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the lord And we could almost just say, you know, Ahab, if you just do the right thing, I wouldn't keep bugging you. But here I am again. You keep turning away from the Lord. Verse 21, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Pretty stiff judgment. Very clear. Now these three places. So three times, 19, 20, 21, God's judgment is prophesied against Ahab's dynasty. Ahab And Jezebel, as we say, are toast. It is over for them. It's just a matter of closing the book. The book on their godless lives, their legacies, is going to close in dramatic fashion. So, what happens next is astonishing we learn something amazing about Ahab, but something even more amazing about the character of God. It it is almost as if everything goes off script here at chapter 21 and verse 25. As we look at God's judgment of Ahab, astonishingly delayed. Looking here at just at point one. But notice verse 25 as we look at 1 Kings 21. Verse 25, there was none, here's the the closing epitaph. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Three observations here that I think are significant. Number one, notice here, Ahab sold himself to do evil. That is, he threw himself into his sin. He abandoned himself to evil. The man's love for sin left him virtually without a conscience. Pope Leo X, one of the most decadent popes of the medieval era, famously said, God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. That's Ahab here. I am Israel's king. I'm going to enjoy every vile pleasure that I can. And Jezebel continued to grease the skids, to incite him and entice him and allure him into deeper and deeper levels of sin. And Ahab bought all in. Number two, notice that God witnessed Ahab's evil. Every sin we commit is witnessed by our all-seeing, all-knowing, everywhere-at-once-present God. No matter how dark the room or isolated the sin, even if it just bangs around within the skull of our own head, no one is getting away with anything ever. Number three, Jezebel incited Ahab's evil. Let's concentrate on that for a moment. This does not excuse Ahab in any way. He's wholly responsible for his actions. Rather than excusing him, it's really saying that he was not only decadent, he was also gullible pliable in the hands of his godless wife. Jezebel lured Ahab to follow her sinful ways, and Ahab gladly followed her direction. So the point is that Ahab was a spineless loser of a spiritual leader in his home, said bluntly. He loved sin, and as she led the way, he followed willingly. This is the legacy of this man. This is how the book Closes out. This is how he's remembered. God permitted the wickedness, verse 26, of the Amorites to devolve to such a low level that the only answer was to exterminate them. Their sensual debauchery metastasized into vile butchery of infant sacrifice. And God drove them out of Canaan in judgment. But ironically and tragically, the king of Israel had become just as sinful as the people that were expelled in the judgment. It's here that we this is where now we encounter that astonishing turn of events. 27 is just not anticipated. It just seems a chapter should end at verse 26, and then we get into the details of how Ahab dies. But what do we read? Verse 27, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. God rebukes him for his sin again and again and again. It's a a mystery as to why this time He seems to get it. The customs of that day are very unfamiliar with us here in verse 27. But in Ahab's day, tearing one's robe and wearing sackcloth and sleeping between sackcloth sheets or whatever it was, fasting, these were all well-known symbols of calamitous grief or terror. So we witness Ahab genuinely humbling himself, acknowledging that God has the power and the right to judge him. And we just say, what on earth? Ahab's display of contrition as genuine is astonishing in light of everything that we've seen. And you just ask the question, is God at work in his heart? This is an amazing account. Verse 28, how does God respond? The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, there's something here, just in our understanding of Bible reading, particularly the Old Testament, I think is really important here to just note. And that is that when God promises to judge someone, that pronouncement always comes as a condition. There's an unstated condition generally with it. The stated promise, God will execute judgment of a sinner. They might give some of the details. The unstated condition is but if that individual repents then the judgment will not come, will not fall. The easiest example of illustration is Nineveh. In 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the promise of God, right? Was it destroyed in 40 days? It was not. Not because God failed his promise but because there's an unstated condition. And because Nineveh repented for a time Then the destruction was averted. Same thing here. Following the stay of execution, there are two possibilities for that person's future. The one is that the repentance is real. The sinner is forgiven. The penitent sinner walks forward in closer fellowship with God. And we celebrate the wonder of God's forgiveness and grace and the restoration of fellowship with that repentant sinner. What's the second possibility? The repentance displays genuine remorse but as time passes it becomes clear that the sinner is only sad only scared or convicted but is not truly repentant. So the question we must ask then as we enter into chapter 22 is this. This is the question that will lead us into that narrative. Is Ahab, real? Is this repentance genuine? Or does he merely feel bad that he's been rebuked? Sadly, chapter 22 demonstrates that Ahab's contrition is only a temporary mood. I mean, he he got out the sackcloth. This is a, a king living very decadently. Everything is about the pleasures that he can get, and he gets out the sackcloth. He lays aside the splendid food at the palace. He really feels bad. He is scared of the judgment of God. There's real emotion and feeling there, but it's only a temporary mood. So the stay of execution then is only temporary. Secondly, we notice that Ahab rejects God's word for the final time and is judged, chapter 22. I'd love to devote a week to this chapter. Here's why I'm not going to do it. Number one, we dealt with this very same narrative just a year ago in a different context, and it's a repeated narrative in our Providence series, which repeats in our adult classes. So I'm going to skip it, also because the fact that Elijah doesn't show up here in this chapter, chapter 22. But, suffice it to say that Ahab hears again the word of the Lord. So some time has passed, he's put away the sackcloth, he's rejoicing that God's judgment has been averted, But as he faces this situation of recapturing Ramoth-Gilead, this this city that was taken from Israel by the Syrians, he lures Jehoshaphat to come with him, the godly but rather gullible king of Judah, and Ahab says, let's go and capture this city. God's word says no, but Ahab listens to all the false prophets that are telling him everything that he wants to hear. They're spinning the situation to appease the king, and he says, let's go up into battle against the word of the Lord, the one true prophet that declares that Micaiah. Now remember the situation there. The Syrian army has one plan. Take out the king. That's it. We don't really care about everybody else. If we take out the head, that'll do it. Look for the king. So you know that's their strategy. As Ahab and Jehoshaphat talk about their strategy to attack the Syrians, here's the plan. Jehoshaphat, you wear kingly robes. Ahab is going to pretend to be a soldier and try to fit right. I mean, who's in trouble here? One guy. It's it's like going into battle and say, here here's your uniform, and it's this big target. (laughs) The bullseye right at your chest. They they are aiming for the king, and Jehoshaphat's dressed like a king. Well, they find him, and God spares him as they recognize it's not the king of Israel. And then we read this in verse 34. So find your way to 2234. Remember, the king of Israel, Ahab, is, is pretending to be a regular soldier. He's dressed like a regular soldier. No one can identify him. But verse 34 of chapter 22, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. So it finds this little, this arrowhead finds its way into this little crease in the armor and pierces him through. Verse 35, and the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until the evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot and about sunset a cry went up through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. I don't know what the washing means. The dogs licking up the blood is obvious. And we stop and say, wait a minute, he's died in Samaria, he's supposed to die in Jezreel. But remember the, un, the, the unstated condition. That changes the application. But I would say and argue and just hang on for a moment that the, that the prophecy is fulfilled absolutely. But this is added to it because of his contrition for a while and yet the end is very much the same the dogs licking up his blood as was the original prophecy hold on to that thought in chapter 21 in verse 19 Elijah prophesied that Ahab's dead body would fall that the dogs would lick up that blood but God subjected Ahab to this very judgment but demonstrates the integrity of that prophecy with his son. Let's go then to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. The book of Ahab's life is now closed. I'm sorry, Let's, let's go, before we go there, let's go back to chapter 22. As I said, there's a lot of moving parts here, I'm Losing them myself. Uh, verse 39 of chapter 22. I should finish out the book on Ahab. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. So there the book closes. Now to chapter 9 of Second Kings. 2 Kings chapter 9, we see Jehu in fulfillment of the prophecies, wiping out Ahab's dynasty. God's judgment against Ahab is complete. There remains God's prophecies against his dynasty and against Queen Jezebel. So remember the prophecy, chapter 19 of 1 Kings on Mount Horeb, on, on Mount Sinai at Horeb, God declares that Jehu will be anointed king of Israel. And that he will judge this dynasty of Ahab. Earlier in the service, we've read, as Jim read to us from 2 Kings chapter 9, we read that account. And you might have been saying, that's a weird Bible reading. <laughs> uh, strange. But it's, that is how Jehu fulfills the prophecy. He takes out Joram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah in fulfillment of that prophecy significantly, let's go to 9 and verse 25, notice here how the prophecy of your blood being licked up on the plot of Naboth's vineyard is fulfilled. Chapter 9 and verse 25, Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him, that is the son of Ahab who's been killed, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So there was a stay of execution for the father Ahab, but now the prophecy is fulfilled in blood, as Ahab's blood flows through his son, and his son is dumped on that very plot of ground in fulfillment of the prophecy. That brings us to Jezebel. Let us close the chapter on her life. Chapter 9. And verse 30. In 1 Kings twenty one twenty three, Elijah said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And there's no stay of execution because her heart is as hard as a stone. But linking that prophecy entrusted to Elijah on Mount Sinai, consider this account of the anointing of Jehu. We, I, I pointed us to verse 30. Sorry, chapter 9, uh, verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4. Let me just read this first of all. To the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, verse 5, the commanders of the army were in council, and he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. And he rose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Note that. And the whole house of Israel of, of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So there's the anointing of Jehu. There is the execution that we have seen. of Ahab's son, Joram, who is dumped on that vineyard's plot. And here again is the promise that Jezebel will be eaten by dogs. Now, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. Almost certainly the window of her palace there at Jezreel. And as Jehu entered the gate, so the gate to the complex, she says, is it peace, you zimri murderer of my master? All right, we need a bridge a little bit here. Why is Jezebel primping? Is she seeking to seduce Jehu? Some have said, she's saying basically, take the royal harem, Jehu, and you can start with me. So she gets herself all gussied up and looking nice. I don't think that's what's going on whatsoever. The reason is because of her comment in verse 31. Is it peace you Zimri murder of her master was meant to do nothing but offend. And Jehu did not miss the point whatsoever. She is linking him with Zimri who murdered the king before them and linking that history and saying to him, you are a worthless murdering fool. It's not a come on. So why does she apply eyeliner and fix her hair? Everything we know about Jezebel fits this this picture well, and that is utter defiance. You want to murder me? Look at the beauty you're destroying. I'm ready for you and whatever you can bring. Her comment, and this is how I think we're on track very clearly, is that he is very angered. Verse 32, he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Okay, <laughs> you see this? They just make eye contact like, yeah, we're not for her. He said, verse 33, throw her down. She's painted, fixed up, defiant, offensive, And dropped to the ground in a heap. They threw her down. Some of her blood spattered on the wall, and the horses trampled on her. The king looked up. The horses did not. And when there was a thud right next to them, they spooked and pulverized her body right on the spot. How does Jehu respond? Verse 34. Then he went and ate and drank. It's like, hey, I, I hear they got a stocked fridge here in this palace. Let's go help ourselves. I mean, that's all he's thinking. He doesn't care at all. He goes in and helps himself to dinner. Verse 34, and he said, apparently now the dinner's over. His hunger is satisfied. He's relaxed in this glorious palace. And then says, now wait a minute, there is a little matter of business to care for. See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. He says, verse 34. But when they went to bury her, they found no more than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. So while he's dining on the queen's table... The dogs are dining on the queen's flesh. Jezebel had been reduced to garbage in a moment of time. Verse 36: when they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. I mean, he had the verse memorized. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. No one's going to stop at her grave because there's no body. The dogs have consumed it. Just a quick Bible reading lesson off the side and we'll come right back to the trail soon. But Jehu is probably not adding to Elijah's prophecy here the prophecy that Elijah speaks is much more brief but know this about Hebrew narrative often they will say here's here's the message of judgment here's the prophecy but they won't fill in all the details then as you move later into the narrative the person will speak more details that doesn't mean the person is adding to the text It doesn't mean that he's lying or being deceptive or massaging this to look more dramatic than it is. It's more likely that many other words were spoken at that original prophecy and he's just sharing some of them later. The narrator knows that's what he's up to so he doesn't repeat the same thing twice. Now if he does repeat the same thing twice and the longer it is, the more significant that is. Back to the point here. I don't think he's adding anything to it. I think he's he's giving the fuller prophecy and he heard it from Elijah. He had earlier been with the king when this prophecy was, was given. And so Jezebel has met her doom and there will be no one able to stand at her grave and mourn her passing. Her legacy forever after is the queen who killed God's prophets and was eaten by a pack of dogs. This is by no means exhaustive, but just in the few moments that we have, let me just draw out a few principles that I think we need to take with us as we leave here today. First of all, God is the final judge. He has the last say always. That is so clear here. That message is being communicated to us in very graphic terms. Ahab and Jezebel were immersed in wealth. They used their power to pursue riches and earthly pleasures. Anything that their vile hearts desired, they went after it. They were a decadent power couple who enjoyed the throne of Israel for all the wrong reasons. They enjoyed it as a staging ground for the central debauchery of pagan idolatry. But that is not the last word. The last word belongs to God alone. And no matter how we live our lives, that is the case with each one of us. At the end of the day, it's what God says that matters. We must feel this reality. We must know that no matter the apparent prosperity of the wicked, everything and everyone faces the final judgment of God. And that judgment is what's all important. Do we live that way? Do we live as if this is the case? God is the final judge. Secondly, God is immensely gracious to all who demonstrate sorrow for sin. I don't know how else to read this narrative, but to draw this out, Ahab was lost. Ahab was judged. Ahab was destroyed. Yet God withheld his hand of judgment due to what God knew was only a temporary season of humility on Ahab's part. Other people could have thought it was genuine repentance. God knew better. And he still withheld his hand. He stayed the execution. It shows us the heart of God leaning toward the sinner and saying, give me something. Just some humility in the face of your sin. Just give me something. We think of Nineveh, that wicked, ruthless, cruel nation that was so criminal in all of its actions that it deserved nothing but immediate destruction. God sends Jonah to that nation and stays his hand because they humble themselves before the word of the Lord. So I may speak with some today, you're really struggling with sin Or perhaps you're separated from Christ and you're here for reasons that really aren't out of your control. You don't really want to be here. In light of this text, do not sin with a proud, brazen disregard for God. Don't do it. Heed God's warning. Humble yourself before Him. He responds in ways we don't expect in grace. It's a weird thing for a pastor to say, but if you're going to sin, sin humbly. If you end up in eternity separated from Christ, it will go better for you as badly as it goes we see evidences of that in scripture that there are degrees of judgment sin humbly but that's of course not a conclusion the next point God only saves those who demonstrate true repentance not those who fake it for a while but repentance, it is turning our back on sin in one single move as we turn our face to embrace God in faith, to renounce our sin, to let it go in our affections and to replace those affections and to place those affections on God. Genuine repentance leads to a changed life. Yes, a genuinely repentant person can fall back into the same sin time and again. We do. But genuine repentance puts us on a different path. It doesn't put us on the path that simply sins humbly. It puts us on a path that doesn't sin. We're not going to get there in this life, but we're on that path. We're moving away from it. We're turning our back on our sin, and we're pursuing God. So let me say it this way. Sorrow for sin has never gotten a single soul into heaven. Not one. Not one feeling bad about your sin, telling your family how sorry you are, how ashamed you are of your behavior, suffering the ravages of guilt, all of these are meaningless in the end. They're far better responses than straight-up defiance of God. They're Ahab-like more than Jezebel-like. But they'll never lead to anything more than a stay of execution, so to speak. At the end of the day, the only only true repentance matters. Repeatedly feeling bad about your sins that you repeatedly commit is not the way of repentance. It's a way of self-deception. Now there's fine nuance there. As we struggle caught in a web of sin. And do not be discouraged by it and say, well, I Clearly, if not repented, I may as well just let go and sin away. Don't go there. But do know that the kind of repentance that God gives by grace alone is the kind of repentance that sees sin progressively pulled out and put to death. Anything else is just bad feelings. And they are never going to matter in the end. Save perhaps something lesser of a judgment but it will be severe so pray pray that god grants you a truly repentant heart seek the counsel of others that help you understand and discern your own heart of whether it's not it, it's truly repentant or just feels bad seek it out let's do so in community as we understand the ways of the lord principle number 4 God will vindicate all who suffer for his name and we should rejoice in that outcome. The blood of the martyrs will be vindicated. It seemed for decades that Jezebel had gotten by with killing God's prophets prior to the events of 1 Kings 19. She put them to death and nothing happened year after year after year. But God did not forget their names. Eventually, her time ran out and he vindicated the shed blood of the prophets. And in this, Christian, within this context of our world, let me say something radically weird. In this, we should rejoice. God hates evil. And we should celebrate its conquest at least in eternity if we cannot understand what's happening here. As adults imbibing the squishy tolerance propagated by a godless society we can think we are noble to shed a tear for Jezebel. But maybe the children get it better. Maybe maybe the right spirit is Ding-dong, the wicked witch is dead. There will come a day in glory when all evil will be gone and forever judged. The eternal day will come when we think like God, not like sinners. And on that day, only those who are righteous will enter his kingdom. And all God's enemies will be vanquished. There's a way in which we cannot rejoice now because we remain sinners. But there's a way in which we should understand that we should. The wicked witch was dead. That was good. And that truth leads us back to the tension that we all must face at this point, And that's that I'm no more righteous than Jezebel. Not in my own strength. So we must conclude to say that God is both just and the justifier of sinners. Which is our only hope. Justification, the forgiveness of sin are gifts of God's grace. The only righteousness that will fit us for heaven is God's righteousness imputed to our account. We're not to gain from this that I'm going to be Elijah and work my way to heaven and not be a Jezebel and rebel against God Rather, as we know our own hearts, we come to realize that rebellion is in each of us. And He is the only righteous one, and thus the only source of righteousness for us. He is just. We're not playing games here, it's not fantasy land, just feel forgiven. That judgment against sin fell on the head of Christ. And he is secondly the justifier. God longs to give Christ righteous standing to us to justify us despite our sin because of what Christ has done. He wants us to say as sinners in a state of repentance and forgiveness, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus Because there is no condemnation of Christ, those in Him, there is no condemnation of us. It is a gift of His grace. And so we sing as we have this morning, My sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. May we leave here as God's people rejoicing in this gift of forgiveness knowing that it's been purchased by christ and knowing that that judgment that we all deserve and will face has been faced by christ alone are you resting in him are you finding in him your joy we look forward even this evening to gathering around this very theme of forgiveness at the lord's table and let's just seek the lord momentarily here as we close father we are thankful for the judgment that has fallen on Christ. We are thankful to know that no sin will ever enter into your presence, either because judgment will have been served beforehand or judgment will have been served beforehand by Christ in our place. May each of us cling to that saving grace. May those who walk today in false repentance see where they're actually at and come to genuine repentance today. For those who simply know of Christ, may they come to be joined with him in union. And for those of us who walk in fellowship, may we gather perhaps tonight around the Lord's table to rejoice in the forgiveness that's been purchased, but even here in our hearts to rejoice with glad thanksgivings for what you have done to give us forgiveness and deliverance from the wrath that we deserve. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.